me. That was great. Richard asked me to choose a Bible reading and I had to choose somewhere in Nehemiah, so that place seemed good. No, I'm only joking. It, it, it'll make sense later why I got Johnny to read those crazy names and words. Um, before I get started, let's just pray. That, oh, thanks for having me back, by the way. Heavenly Father, you are a great and awesome and mighty and loving God to us. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, as we read Nehemiah, which you put in your Bible for us tonight, we ask that you would teach us, Lord, that my words would be your words, that, that we would really and truly hear from you and that it would affect us. Lord, would you change us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Okay, um, Nehemiah is one of the smaller books, if you're looking for it in your, in your Bibles. Um, I've, I've always thought that all the little books in the Old Testament, they, they're at the back, they're at the back end, like Obadiah and Habakkuk and all those other weird name ones. So when I decided I'm going to read Nehemiah, I flipped to the back and I'm like, where is that book? But it's back in the, back in the start. So I found it and I read it and I loved it. And it's awesome and I want to share it with you tonight. Before I do, I want to tell you about a, um, a couple of accidents that I've had on my bike. I like to ride a push bike around. Um, one of my wheels is dented and not quite round at the moment because of a crash I've had. But I'll tell you about a different one first. I was uh, coming back from uni uh, and I had one of those little speedo things on my bike. Um, it tells you how fast you're going and how many kilometres you've rode and all that sort of stuff. And I used to love doing that. And I was riding, riding back from uni one day in a bike lane on a road and there was a big truck uh, double parked. So there was, there was cars there and the truck had obviously just wanted to run into a building and make a delivery uh, and there was a little bike lane. And there wasn't much space left to the bike lane because the truck was parked where it shouldn't have been. And I was coming past the truck at around about 35 uh, kilometres an hour uh, and I was you know, riding expecting I would just whiz past this truck uh, but I didn't realise that the truck driver hadn't actually got out of the truck yet. And so he opened the door about one metre in front of where I was just about to come flying, smashing into the door of this truck. I thought to myself, what do I do now? And so I tried to steer out of the way. I didn't quite steer far enough. hit it. Um, I almost got his leg. He, he sort of you know, saw me coming and sort of pulled his leg away. I clipped it and I went out into the lane of the road and I thought I was going to get run over by a car, so I quickly gathered my thoughts and hurt my knee and everything like that. So that's, that's one bike story. I'll tell you why I'm telling you bike stories in a minute. Another one. Um, uh, is, oh, I've got so many to share, which one shall I choose? No. Uh, I was riding to school this time uh, and I, was, I like to ride quickly and I was coming uh, down a hill and when you ride down a hill you go even quicker than normal. It's wonderful. I was riding down my hill and I turned around to the right uh, and then I needed to take a little path off to the left to finally make it to the, the place where I was riding, which was to school. I'm a teacher, by the way, so this is more recent than... Way back. Oh, I used to be a teacher. I don't know what I am anymore. Um, turned into there, but I was riding quite fast. And I go to put my brakes on to slow down to turn into this side street, and I hear this almighty snap, and I'm like, uh-oh. Uh, you know, you know, you, you know that, that panicking moment when you realise what you're trying to make work doesn't work anymore, and you're flying ahead. There was a, a van parked right, right in front of where I needed to make that turn. And I thought, I'm not going to be able to make this turn. So I had a quick decision. Do I whack into the back of this van to stop? I've got to stop somehow. Or do I whack myself into the, you know, the square gutters? Not the nice rounded gutters that people have, but the, the square ones. That's the one that made my wheel not square anymore because I decided I'm not going to hit the van. I'm going to go to the gutter. So I hit the gutter uh, and, like I said, wrecked my wheel. And I went over the, over the handlebars and grazed my hands. That was my own stupidity. The first one... Um, there's nothing I could have done. I was just riding along. 
and something just came out of the blue, boom, knocked me off my bike. Second one, I was probably riding a little bit too fast and my brakes, I don't, I don't have a super duper bike, I just, so the brakes are probably copping a bit, they snapped. It was probably my own stupidity that I ended up in that mess. Our Christian walks, I reckon, are much the same as bike riding because we find ourselves sometimes just flying along, the wind's in our hair, with our helmet on top, of course, but, you know, I don't have much hair under here, so I don't know, but it feels nice to be right along fast on the bike, and you think, things are going well, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm, I'm involved in ministry, things are going great. But sometimes, you just get knocked off by something. Sometimes it's within our control, and we've just stuffed up, sometimes it's not. And Nehemiah is a great book for tips on getting back on that bike, getting back on that Christian bike. When we've been knocked off or something's happened in our Christian walk, that it just means that we're, we're in a place where we're not reading the Bible anymore. We're not praying for people anymore. Um, Nehemiah is a great book for getting back on that bike. So I want to share with you some of the wonderful things I've found in this book, just basically a bunch of tips for getting back on that Christian bike. So I want to start in Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to whiz through. If you've got a Bible and you can follow, that's good. Um, if not, you'll just have to listen to me read some verses. There's not too many. Nehemiah, um, actually before I get started, I'll give you a little bit of a track record of whether up to before Nehemiah um, was written. Israel are a nation. Uh, they're meant to be the people of God. People are meant to look at Israel and go, wow, their God is awesome. And they find themselves in a place without land, with their city destroyed, absolutely in, in no man's land, they're, they're just sort of scattered amongst the people. Uh, and this guy, Nehemiah, is actually working. He's a Jew. He's a part of the people of Israel. And he's working for this other, this king, this Persian king. His name's Ar, Artaxerxes. Johnny, I've been practicing that. Did you practice yours? I don't know. Um, um, so basically, you get this, you get this cupbearer guy. He's, he's working for the king as a cupbearer, bringing him stuff to drink. This is this guy, Nehemiah. He has some people that come to him from around the area where Jerusalem was. And they say this to him, the remnant, this is verse 3 in chapter 1, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And here's Nehemiah's reaction, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And, and I said, and it goes on and it, it has Nehemiah's prayer. And this isn't, a, this isn't one of those prayers where you sort of just say the words, right? Nehemiah was absolutely devastated that his nation, that he was involved in, had become something terrible. So he prayed, as it says up on the screen, he really prayed. It wasn't just words. This was feelings, that he's pouring his heart out to God. And he wasn't buttering it up. There wasn't some sort of mask he was putting over here, you know, to make himself look good before God as if we can trick him somehow because he knows everything. At the end of verse 6 it says, Even I and my father's house have sinned. He knows he's part of the, the blame. He is part of the reason why they've fallen off the bike and he's praying to God. At the end he says, Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. He just goes, God, I find myself in this terrible place. Help. Help. So the first tip I give you from Nehemiah for getting back on that bike, that, that Christian walk, is Pray. When you find yourself in that situation where things are not going as they should as a Christian, pray. Really, really pray. You can't trick God. Lay it all before Him. 
When you go home tonight, if you need to do it, pray. Really, really pray to God saying, help me, Lord. I want to get back on that bike. So Nehemiah has prayed. Chapter 2 comes along. He's before the king. He's going to serve him another cup. And the king goes, look, Nehemiah, why is your face sad? It says. So it was obviously affecting him. I mean, he's been mourning and weeping for days. He prays out to God saying, help. It's really affecting this guy. It's irking him, the place that he's in. Why is your face sad? And then Nehemiah says down in verse 5 of chapter 2, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He says, look, king, I want to do something about this. And the king grants him his request. says down at the end of verse 8, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So Nehemiah has prayed to God. He said, Lord, help. And God is already starting to answer his prayer, giving him leave from his job as cupbearer to the king. It moves on. the, um, The next thing Nehemiah does, he goes to Jerusalem like the king has given him permission to and he looks around and he sees that the walls are all devastated. He doesn't just leave it at a prayer. Sometimes... We might find that we pray to God and we expect God to do something and then we sit in our haunches and do nothing about it. Why? Nehemiah was irking him so much. He so wanted to see Israel restored to that nation that people could look at and go, wow, their God must be great. It was irking him that God's name was being trashed. He wanted to do something about it so much that he actually put the practical steps in place. It says uh, at verse 17 of chapter 2, He goes around and he finds some of his Jewish people around, scattered around the place. He says, I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah's got an action plan. He's going to go and get some people to help build the wall. And Johnny, you are so lucky I didn't get you to read chapter 3 because that thing has about almost 200 of these crazy names in it. These are all people like Eliashib and um, Zakur and Hanassah and Malachashmam. Lots of different names here. It's like this, this name from this crazy tribe Um, has built this part of the wall. Nehemiah has managed to get all of these different people together, practical steps he's taking here, practical things that he has decided to do about the problem. When you have fallen off the bike and you're trying to get back on, pray, really pray to God, and then do something about it yourself as well. God gave you a brain. Don't just sit there and do nothing. You are part of God's solution to the problem. You need to do something too. Nehemiah um, has done something about it. So we'll move on. Chapter 4 now. Um, this is where the story starts to get really interesting. Uh, he gets this guy, Sam Ballot, um, who heard that they were building the wall and he was angry and greatly enraged. This guy's not a Jew. And then it says, he jeered at them. Oh, not a jeering. I don't know whether that's sort of making fun of and stuff, but I sort of imagine jeering as the angry look, like they're building the wall and he's just standing there going, you know, and you think, oh, wow, that's some serious opposition there. I can understand, no. But it got worse. They start to tease him. This other guy comes out of the woods named Tobiah the Ammonite. Um, and he says, if a fox goes up on that wall, he'll break it down. As if to say, you know, the wall you're building is really stupid. A fox could break it. It's like, oh, wow, that's really harsh opposition. But then it starts to get even worse. Uh, verse 8, 
And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. They're actually trying now to declare a war against these people who are building the wall. There's some serious opposition going on here. So, Nehemiah's response to them trying to start a war with him, he says down in verse 16 of chapter 4, From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows and coats of mail and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each laboured on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other hand and each builder had swords strapped to his sides. You see, Nehemiah, he doesn't go, oh no, they're trying to fight against us. I'm going to stop. He decides he's going to do something about it. He decides he's actually going to keep building but also get some, some way to combat the opposition. So he's got the builders who are labouring with stuff, carrying swords and spears and stuff as well, doing two things at once. I think it's a great way to um, deal with opposition. You don't just go, well, that's bad, I'm going to stop. Sometimes when we try to get back on the bike, we will get these opposition things that come from outside, like what I mentioned when I, um, the guy just opened his doors, like, boom, I'm off my bike straight away. Sometimes in our Christian life, we'll find that things just wipe it out for some reason. Our quiet times were going so well. Our prayer times were going so well. And for whatever reason, you know, I, I, recently I've got a newborn. His name's Caleb and he's awesome. Um, but one of the unawesome things that was a consequence of having a new kid is that my quiet times in the morning just went, I wasn't sleeping anymore. And so I needed to sleep in the morning and I couldn't get up and I was sleeping through my alarm and, you know, it was bad. So, I I could have gone, you know what, quiet times are all too hard now. Reading my Bible is too hard, praying is too hard, so I'm just going to do the best with what i got. Or I could realise this is just a little bit of opposition and I could just toss that back. No, (laughs) I wouldn't do that. Don't laugh so hard, Johnny. Um, I I can put things in place to organise other times in the day to do my quiet times. When there's opposition that comes, don't give up. Keep trying to get back on that bike and do and live the life that God wants you to live. The opposition doesn't get um, any better here. Like they, they eventually figure out that, okay, they're all armed, so they're ready for battle, so let's not attack them there. Let's do something else. And they go directly for Nehemiah in chapter 6. They, they send this message to Nehemiah and they say in verse 2, Come, let us meet together at Hakaflurim in the plain of Ono. Um, and... They, Nehemiah's response basically is, mm, no, because he is doing the Lord's work. He says, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. They knew, uh, Nehemiah knew that they were just going to kill him when he went out there. And so he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And it gets worse and they start to make threats against Nehemiah. Um, you see that at verses uh, 10 to 14 of chapter 6. Um, uh, it says, uh, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you by night. See, Nehemiah was trying to rally the, rally the people of Israel together. He, he's got these people threatening war, so he does something about it. And then he's got these people who actually are trying to make even death threats against him, saying that, you know, when you go to sleep, Nehemiah, I'm going to kill you. That's terrible. That's terrible opposition. And still he doesn't give up. He keeps going. They say, why don't you go and hide in the temple, Nehemiah? The temple being the house of God, the sacred house of God. And Nehemiah, he doesn't fall for that. He doesn't want to go and profane the house of God. He goes, no, I don't need to do that. My God is with me. And you know what? God wants you to get back on that bike. 
Of course he does. And he is with you when you try. So when the opposition comes, your response should be the same as Nehemiah's. It really should be. Let's keep moving on. I have totally not looked at my notes in ages. So, yeah. Chapter 8. Another great chapter. This is the chapter that I got Johnny to read some from. And he did so well. I'll highlight some verses in chapter 8. 8 verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Down to verse 3. And Ezra read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Hang on a minute. That's like six hours of Bible reading. I can't believe that there was a sermon that went for that long. I might go for that long. No, I'm not going to go for that long. But you see that the people are sitting there all together perhaps sitting, standing, I don't know, the whole nation come together to read God's word. It was like a central thing for them. Um, and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. They're all listening for six hours. It's like, whoa, I wonder what would happen if I just started at the beginning and started reading for six hours from now, whether we'd all pay attention. I don't know. I probably would fall asleep reading. Um, uh, verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. These people weren't just reading the word. They weren't just listening to the word. It was actually affecting them. They're like, Amen, Amen, yes, I get it. And we keep going on uh, in the verse um, 7. All those crazy names that Johnny read, um, it says they helped the people to understand the Lord. It's like they had these, um, Ezra was reading at the front, and it's like the sermon. And then there's all these little home groups going around with all of these Hodiah and Masai and Kelata leading all the home groups. Um, and they read from the book the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. People were not just reading the word of God. They weren't just listening to the word of God. They were starting to understand it. And the understanding was just cutting people to the heart. As we see further down, it says, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. This is, this is what the, the Word of God should do to us. It should affect us on the inside. These people were hearing God's Word and crying. And Ezra was actually pleading with them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this, is the day, this day is holy to the Lord our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, Ezra's pleading with them, Although the, the word of God can sometimes cut us deeply and we realize we're doing wrong, it needs to go through to joy when we look at God's reaction to us when we stumble, which we'll get to. It should be moved through into joy. An example of um, a time in my life when I was just... I love the word of God now, but there was a, there was a time when I, I couldn't get enough of this book. It was awesome. Um, I was about second year uni, um, and I can remember uh, I'd wake up early in the mornings... Um, really early in the mornings, like I started at about 5.30 and then I was like, this is so cool and I was writing, uh, uh, this, this is my folder, every time I see this folder I, I love it and I, and I have a look and I flip through and it's got, it's, got a, it's got something on every single verse in Romans and every single verse in Isaiah, all of my thoughts about the verses and I, I was waking up every single morning, getting this folder, grabbing a new piece of paper and going, alright God, what have you got for me this morning? And I loved it. I loved it. I wanted to do it more and more. 5.30 went to 5 and 5 went to 4.30 and I was like, can I even not sleep anymore just so I can keep reading the Bible all the time? I don't know. It was a time in my life when I loved, I loved, I loved the Word of God and I keep coming back to this folder going, Lord, make it like that again. I quest for it. I want that joy. I want the joy from reading the Word of God. I want it to affect me on the inside. 
I want that for you guys too. That's part of getting back on the bike. Read God's word and let it cut you deep. Let it cut you deep and then grab that joy, that sweet joy. The way that God's word affects us is a wonderful, wonderful thing. You cannot get back on that bike without it. So quest after this. <clears throat> we move on. Uh, in verse uh, 9, this is, this is a remarkable chapter of scripture. It is really, really good. I was blown away when I sat and read this. You get Israel who are gathering together again. This time they're not reading the word of God. They're actually remembering stuff that God's done for them. They're remembering their track record. They're remembering their history. Um, <clears throat> verse 6 in chapter 9 says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them. The host of heaven worship you. You are the Lord. They just glory in God. They say, you are God and you are wonderful. And then they start remembering their covenant that was given to Abraham. And then they remember Egypt, how they came out of the desert and God was giving them uh, this pillar of fire to... to you know, guide them around in the desert and giving them manna from heaven. All this great stuff that God was doing for them. And then it gets to verse 16, which says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and they didn't obey your commandments. And I think, oh, stupid Israel. It's terrible. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we're very similar God has done so much for us and we find ourselves turning our back on God and we think, ah, oh, stupid Jeff. If your name's not Jeff, then you can't say that one, but you know. Um, end of verse 15, this is God's response when they stuff it up. Uh, verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. That is our God. That is your God. And that is wonderful. It goes on about how God gave them all of these great kingdoms and kings. Verse 26, we get it again. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and they killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn back to you and they committed great blasphemies. I think, ah, oh, stupid Israel, stupid Jeff. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. And does God go, no, that's enough. I'm done. No, he doesn't. They cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. God, God comes back again. Verse 29, and he warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously again and didn't obey your commandments, but they sinned against your rules. Oh, Israel, stupid Israel. Are you getting a pattern here? This is the way it works. Verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. God is so good to us. It really irks me when I hear people say, and I know people think, I'm, I'm too bad for God. That is a lie. It's a lie from Satan. Jesus came and died on a cross so that you could be drawn back to God, so that God could show his true character. How dare we say that we're too bad for God when he died for us to come back? It is wrong and it is a lie. Don't feed it to yourself. You are not too bad for God. 
God is full of mercy. He has promised he will never leave you nor forsake you. And he won't. So don't lie to yourself when you're trying to get back on the bike thinking, I can't do it. I'll never be a good Christian. Don't lie to yourself, please. Jesus died so that you don't have to. If you keep lying to yourself in that way, Jesus' death means nothing. So get back on that bike. God is a faithful, faithful God. He will not leave you and he will not forsake you. He didn't forsake Israel and he won't forsake you. Then we move over to chapter 13. Oh, just we'll make a stop over in chapter 12, shall we? There's a good verse in 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy, and the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You see what's happening here when Israel is getting back on the bike? It's spreading. It's not just people who are hearing God's word. It's the joy that's spreading. The women and the children are getting it, and the joy of Jerusalem is heard far, far away as well. When you get back on that bike and you're riding it with a passion, when I was like this, going, yeah, this is awesome. I was getting people to read the word of God with me at uni. I was like, hey, come on, let's read Romans. I'll show you what I learned this morning. That joy is catching. It just happens. It's happening here and it'll happen in your life. When people get back on the bike, you help other people get back on the bike. Let's all get back on the bike together. Verse Chapter 13, let's go there now. <clears throat> this is a, a weird chapter. A little bit happens in the storyline. Nehemiah, um, he thinks, you know what? Jerusalem's going good and I need to go back to the king. The king only gave me leave. He didn't fire me. So I'm going back to the king. I'm going to do some cup-bearing for a while. That must be a strange job, filling up a cup and taking it to a king. Anyway, he's gone back. He's done some cup-bearing for a while and he comes back to Jerusalem to see how things are going. Let's have a look. Um, verse 8. Um, actually, I'll tell you a bit before verse 8. Verse 8 is Nehemiah throwing some stuff out of a temple. The guy, Tobiah, the one that was paying them out about the fox breaking down the wall, that guy, um, somebody has set him up a little shop in the temple to sell furniture. And Nehemiah's like, uh-uh, so he's throwing all the furniture out. Sound familiar? Jesus did a bit of that in his day, throwing the furniture out of the temple of God, saying, no, 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 this isn't the way you treat, treat God. So that's one thing that Nehemiah found. Another thing that he finds is he finds the Levites who are meant to be given portions of food by the people making sacrifices have been told, no, you guys should work as well. You're not going to get anything to do God's work. You guys go and do, do your work as well. And so there's nobody who's got their time freed up to do God's work. And the Levites aren't getting paid. Nehemiah's like, this is wrong, so he puts a stop to that as well. Um, and then he finds that people are profaning the Sabbath day, doing trading all the way through the Sabbath day, which was meant to be a special day for doing God's work. And we find uh, Nehemiah, he deals with that as well, straight away. He goes and he locks the gates. He says, no, no, no trade. Trade's closed on, on Sabbath. And so he locks both of the gates. He deals with that straight as well. The way he deals with the next one is crazy. 23, in those days I also saw Jews who had married the women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. And... Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they couldn't speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. It was a big no-no to intermarry at that stage. The Jews were God's people and they were meant to marry inside God's people. Um, it's a big no-no. God told them not to. Nehemiah sees it as a sin. Now verse 25, this is the way he deals with it. And I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them 
and I pulled out their hair. It says it, verse 25, it's right there. Um, Nehemiah is not a guy who's going to let this sin keep entangling the nation. He's like, no, we are dealing with this and we're dealing with it now. When you get back on the bike, don't expect that sin is never going to rear its ugly head again. But when it does, treat it seriously. Bash its head on a coffee table and pull its hair out. If your sin is in the human form, maybe. No, don't do that. Um, Bottom line is, Nehemiah treats disobedience to God so seriously. He's got his nation back up on his bike. He's not um, thinking that it's never going to happen. But when he sees it, he deals with it straight away. And that's what we need to do when we get back up on the bike. And that is the end of Nehemiah. I love that book. I think it's a great book. When I was reading it, I was like, this stuff is awesome. Bottom line is, there's some tips there for you to get back on the bike. This sermon will be a complete waste of time if, if you leave here and you know that you're not back on that bike and you do nothing. Right? So let me encourage you, plead with you, pray, get real about it. Get really real about it. Really pray. Pray until you pray, the Puritans used to say. That rhymes. Take the practical steps. Be ready for the opposition. God's word. Love it. It is so, so important. And remember that God is a faithful God. You are not too bad for God. You can get back on the bike. God wants you to get back on the bike. Don't expect that when you're there that things are going to go all fine and dandy all the time because it won't be that way. Treat sin seriously. Let's pray. God, thank you for putting that book of Nehemiah in there. Lord, you are so awesome to us. We have a look at the Israel's, Israel's track record and we go, oh, they were really dumb. And yet you have them back. But Lord, when we're honest about it and we have a look at our own track records, you have proven yourself to be a great lover of us. You have proven that, that, that your love is real because practically you have saved us. Practically you saved the Israelites. You keep accepting them back. You have promised that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And we thank you, thank you, thank you that you are a God full of mercy that we can keep running back to you. Lord, may we never decide to run the other way. And we never decide that when we've done something wrong, we're going to run away from you. Help us always to run to the foot of the cross where all the forgiveness is there in what Jesus has done. He poured out his life for us. Lord, may we run there. Lord, please don't let people leave tonight who, are, who know they need to get back on the bike, content to just sit and do nothing. Lord, help them to take these steps like what Nehemiah took for the nation of Israel and help it to make a difference, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.